Hey everybody, it's Mike Shea from slyflourish.com and twitter.com slash slyflourish here with another episode of the DMs Deep Dive. In this show, I like to get together with an industry expert and pick one particular topic uh, in the world of D&D and dive deep in it. And today it is my great pleasure to have Wolfgang Bauer on the show. Uh, do you go? Do you prefer if I call you Wolf? Is that too casual? I don't know. I, it sounds too hippie to me. I like Mr. Wolfgang just fine. Mr. Bauer, Dr. Bauer, what do you... No, no. Wolfgang's fine. Wolfgang. Oh, very good. Uh, would you please introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, so I'm the publisher at Cobalt Press. I've been working in the D&D world for, oh, these many years since TSR and Dragon and Dungeon Magazine. And my world building is is remarkably lots. <laughs> um, I expanded Planescape with the first city guidebook uh, up at the top of the spire. I did Al-Kadim world building and my own campaign setting of Midgard uh, has been running now for six or seven years and doing just fine. So uh, yeah, I'm a world builder, I'm a designer, and I'm a publisher. That is awesome. Yeah. And you, and you, you uh, certainly put together and wrote a few essays in a book called The Kobold Guide to World Building. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, read, I read it before, but I also read it before this one just to do a little bit of homework. Yeah, I got a bunch of industry veterans, uh, some of my friends, people like Ed Greenwood or Jeff Grubb and uh, new kids um, who all have done world building and had something to say about it. So we had a good time putting that together. That book has been in print for about four years and people keep coming back saying I read it and I realized what I needed to do so it lays out a bit of a framework um, in more detail chapter by chapter uh, and on special topics like cartography we got Jonathan Roberts in for that chapter um, I'm really proud of that book I think it won an any yeah and yeah that one and along with uh, Kobold, Kobold's Guide to Adventure I think Adventure Writing or Adventure Building there's an adventure, there's a uh, plots and campaigns, mm -hmm. possibly. Uh, and there's also one, <laughs> the first one was called The Complete Guide to uh, Game Design. And I'm like, man, why did we start with complete? <laughs> <laughs> no, we, that's it, we're done. Yeah, we're done, one and done. <laughs> nope, nope, no more questions. <laughs> so, you know, and we've got one on game mastering and we've got one on board games. So the Cobalt Guides have done really well because it's just going out to people who've done this for a living. That is great. That's great. Asking them. Um, so with every guest, I always like to start uh, with, with you know, a, a, a question that kind of grabs everybody's interests. Uh, what are your top three uh, tips for world building? So the top three tips, there's a whole lot of tips I could have gone with here, but I think my top three, um, and I'll expand on all of them as much as you like, uh, is one of them is know what you're trying to build. So pick a theme or pick a seed or pick a tone, right? Um, because world building is such a vast field. You could go in a million different directions and waste a lot of time. So if you say, I want to build gothic horror, great. I want to build survival horror. Okay, that's different. I want to build elfy fantasy. Okay, great. But write it down and know what it is. Um, then my second tip is, and I've gone back and forth on this, start small. Um, for newer world builders, especially the urge is to do absolutely everything, right? Like the encyclopedic approach, um, which can be really satisfying to the deep nerd that wants to know it all. But for D&D, you need a village, right? You need Hamlet, um, you need something small. So start small and make sure that your themes are incorporated in that. And then the third thing is sort of a new top three tip for me. 
Um, not that I'm saying I had a bitter experience. I'm just saying that this is a good, good tip. Before you want to roll out a new campaign and set in a new world, make sure that the players you have in mind for that setting are on board, right? Um, you can spend a lot of time doing world building for yourself, but if you mean to bring it to your table with your regular group of players or a new group of players, just say to everybody, okay, uh, we've wrapped up our Cthulhu game. Next week, I'm bringing Elf Fantasy. You're all down with that, right? And <laughs> yeah. if, the, if the response is, yay, daddy, yay, Elf Fantasy, then I'm like, oh, good. My kids still love what I think they love. And if the response <laughs> is, we're grognards and we hate elves, what are you thinking? Then you're like, I may have misjudged my audience. Um, so just know before you do it because otherwise the inevitable heartbreak is i have brought the wrong world to the audience mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So those are my top three those are great yeah the start small one is interesting and and, and you know i i so i i had i had you know obviously read a lot of, of stuff that you did um but until i kind of re-reviewed the world building guide so uh i had another guest on the show enrique bertrand the new bdm oh, yeah, uh, yeah. good good friend of mine and and he talked about it yeah and his whole his whole pitch was like you know, nobody gives a damn about your 5,000 year history and nobody True. gives a damn about all the gods that you have sitting. They care about like the village you're in and the bar that they're in and the, the rats that are causing problems in the basement. Like that's, yes. you know, that's what they care about. And that got and a I lot of controversy. <laughs> I think it's true, though, because the character perspective right. is, I'm That's a hero, fun. I have concerns right now, where's my next treasure chest coming from, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think it's true that no one cares about 5,000 years of backstory. I think the person who cares about that is you, the game master and world builder. Mm -hmm. But your players don't until the moment when you say, oh, the reason your village is messed up is because 5,000 years ago, this curse came along. Right? right, yeah. And the moment you make history um, smack upside right. the head, then they say, well, what, what, what happened 5,000 years ago? And all of a sudden it's like, wizard, tell us what you know in your books. Bard, do some lore, right? Suddenly they're interested in history, but not until it hits them upside the head. Right, right. Oh, by the way, my mom is in chat. Hi, mom. <laughs> Yay! I'm so glad my mom. That's great. Supportive family. <laughs> yep. Good. Um, yeah, it's it's a it's a really interesting idea, and that idea that like yeah, it, what matters to the characters, right? What you can bring in front of the characters is is what's going to matter. It could be a five thousand year history if they find out that the small village they're on is sitting on the ruins of a five thousand year old destroyed mediocracy. Oh, that's awesome! Now I got yes. something to explore, right? Now, I'm right. Or if you find out that the Order of Paladins that you have all been befriending has, you know, falling apart right. for some reason. Right, well, right. let's find out. Um, but yeah, you got to bring it into the present. And I mean, the counterexample for all about the present is like the Silmarillion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> <laughs> like, would we have the Lord of the Rings if <laughs> Professor Tolkien hadn't like essentially farted around with elvish languages and 5,000 years of history. A bunch of songs. A bunch of songs. <laughs> and it's like, oh, look, the Lay of Baron and Luthien. Oh, this is great and romantic. And there's werewolves. Great. What? Yeah. Uh, none of this appears in Lord of the Rings. Yep. Well, the Silmarils sort of vaguely. But I mean, it, but for him, it was important. Mm 
-hmm. in order to do the world building he wanted to do and tell the story he wanted to tell. So if you care and you want to fill up three notebooks worth of world building thing, mm -hmm. I say go for it. Yeah. Just don't expect your players. Although, I kind of want to go to Amazon and see what the star rating is on the Similarian. Uh, <laughs> Probably not so good. Not as good as The <laughs> Hobbit and The right. Lord of the Rings because it does feel sometimes like his notebooks. And the further you get into the ephemera, right? Yeah, right. The right. more it's like, this really is the notebook they hauled out of the back of the attic. Right, right. Um, so, so one thing that I've, I've often thought about because I'm, I'm, I tend to lean towards using other people's campaign worlds because I'm very lazy and it's a lot easier for me to grab someone else's. Oh, yeah. But, but there's also something about the amount of energy and resources that go into a published campaign setting. Yeah. That I can't replicate. Right. Like I can't. No. You know how much money has been spent on the Forgotten Realms, right? Like a lot, a lot, <laughs> millions. I don't have that much, you know. Right, right. How many authors have written for the Forgotten Realms? How many? I don't even know. Right. Hundreds. How many editors? How many editors have edited text that other people wrote? Ah, so many. Right. So why am I? Why would I not capitalize on that? But that's you know that's that's actually in the you know according to my flawed surveys that I've done, it's uh, most people still continue to play with their own campaign world yeah no i saw Definitely that one. from my very earliest days working on dungeon magazine every poll we ever did mm -hmm. um what campaign setting are you using what's well, like greyhawk forgotten realms and my own stuff and mm -hmm. it could be like a third a third a third but there was always a huge contingent of homebrew and i love that crowd right mm -hmm. that's me <laughs> um right. I, I homebrewed I, and then turned it into midgard <laughs> well, <laughs> like, yeah a publisher and but there's ready. a really important step that happens there to get it ready to publish right <laughs> like the notes i bring on a friday night aren't publishable and for most dms that's not the goal right mm -hmm. it's like i want to show my players a good time do i want to publish it in a 300 page hardcover mm, yeah i want to but do i want to do two years of work to get it there mm -hmm. Do I want to lay out thousands of dollars for art and editing? Maybe not. <laughs> but you did. <laughs> well, I did. Oh, my God. Not gosh. everybody. <laughs> I'll tell horror stories about the very first Midgard hardback. That thing almost broke the company. Really? Uh, that, so that, is, what that tells me is more value. I got more value out of it. <laughs> it, was it was, yeah, you did. Because we pinched every penny and I pulled in every favor I knew. And I was like, can we make this work on the budget we had pre-Kickstarter? Mm -hmm. Right. The budget for the first Midgard hardcover was was sliced 10 ways from Sunday. And it, I think we obscured pretty well how much Blood, Sweat, and Tears was required to even get that book out. The second edition, of course, the, the fifth edition version of Midgard, we had a budget because we had a Kickstarter. Mm -hmm. So it was easier, mm -hmm. but there was still an enormous amount of, nah, this isn't right. Mm -hmm. um, and this is one of the problems with published settings is the bigger they get and the more successful they get, the harder it is to put out a new edition. I don't know how the Forgotten Realms people do it other than burn it down and start over, right? right. Um, <laughs> That seems like a more and more logical solution to me the longer. Yeah, I... but it didn't have a lot of fans. Nobody loves it except <laughs> the people who are like, let's make it easy for new people to get right. their brain around it. Right, right. Um, like Lost Minds, right? Start small. Yeah, right. Um, or, yeah, focus on the Sword Coast, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, we're yeah. just going to use this little slice right over here. Well, and that's 
that's a way to start small. Maybe it's not the village, maybe it's the region, right? Mm -hmm. um, for me, it was Zobek uh, in the Midgard setting, mm -hmm. which was the region that is sort of like Greyhawk was, or the Sword Coast, or, you know, pick your favorite example, Barovia for Ravenloft, just a smaller slice of the whole thing. Um, because everybody wants there to be an entire huge world, but the fact is the players are only going to explore a portion of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> focus on that and hint at um, the ancient history. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess there's, you know, talking about that idea of starting small, there's, there's when you, when you have sort of the resources that Wizards of the Coast has and they decided to start small, you know, like they, they can, you know, hire a hundred writers to work on something, right? Yeah, if they wanted to. But in their case, I think the decision comes from the other direction. They're trying to, trying to make the audience happy with it, right? Right. They could spend the money and do a 12-volume set on the Sword Coast if they mm, wanted. Yeah, right. <laughs> Does any? And there are people who want to buy oh, a 12-volume yeah, sure. set, yeah. right? Probably me. I mean, I'd buy it, but I buy everything. <laughs> right. <laughs> but they were thinking, like, you know, for new role players who don't have their arms around the realms and barely know what it is, mm -hmm. and who are still getting sort of comfortable with the rules and role playing as a hobby. Do you want to hit them with a big fat hardcover mm -hmm. that's maybe you know fifty bucks or a box set, or do you just want to say, "Here's the village and here's some mines. Mm -hmm. Go explore." Right. Um, watch out for the dragon. Watch out for the dragon. I think this is why Keep on the Borderlands was mm -hmm. so successful, right? Mm -hmm. It's not overkill, and it's really hard as a game master to take that urge and like dial it mm -hmm. down because. Mm -hmm. I think there's a very nerdly instinct to say, let's explain everything and let's have, you know. <laughs> fill in all the gaps. Fill in all the gaps. Yeah. Um, I actually had a, a reader recently on Facebook say to me, you know, you guys put out the Midgard campaign setting and it's just a teaser for the setting. <laughs> it's like, like, it's this thick. It's a 450 yeah. page book. It's like, book. it's not enough. <laughs> like, it's a teaser. You've led me on. <laughs> like, yeah. You look at it just like, well, get to work. Yeah. Right? Go start writing, man. Fill it out. I was like, oh, uh, okay. I, that's an interesting perspective. But for some people, you want to go that deep right away. Yeah. And that person is the game master. And the players are like, where are we? Right, right. So who's in this bar? When, when should a game, I, you know, there's probably. I don't know that there's ever advice one can give on something like this because I have a feeling that DMs are just going to go whatever direction they like. They've but, all got different styles. Yeah. Uh, are there? What are what are some some choices? What what how how can a DM choose whether to go with a published campaign setting or go homebrew? Right. Well, I mean, some of it is just time, right? If you have no time to speak of, yeah. or if you're just desperate to get it together for Friday, and you're like. If you prefer to just say, I'm taking it out of the box and making it my own, great. There are a lot of fantastic DMs who will, who will take, oh, I don't know, Fantastic Adventures, right? Or <laughs> Eldritch Lairs or something like that. And, uh, and just run everything in it the way they want to run it, string it together. Um, I think partly it's knowing what your style is, right? So some people just want sort of a framework and then the fun of it is in the play of it mm -hmm. and figuring out which parts of it 
resonate for you and your players and can you do these funny voices and are goblins good or whatever if you if you want to do the extra work and prep for deep homebrew and world building you got to want it pretty bad cuz it's got to it's going to eat a certain chunk of your prep time right and you're going to spend prep time on world questions like what's the trade route here or uh, What's the city council like? And what is law and justice like in this town, right? Um, which are all interesting questions and I love pursuing them, but you don't need to pursue them if your players aren't the wild, you know, law-breaking types, or if they look at that town, okay, they're all the law-breaking types. <laughs> they might all start that way. Well, I've had some groups that are mostly law-abiding, but, but they might just see that town and say, you know, we really want to go out to the ruins in the hills. We're skipping the town. We're just buying 50 feet of rope and moving on. Right, a 10-foot pole. Yeah, we bought our 10-foot pole. And, and you're sitting there going, but the town council, yeah, we don't want to help that. <laughs> right? Every game master has had the, I've got 10 hooks in this town, and the players just rode through story. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, the lazy uh, DM is all about this. Is <laughs> don't prep the thing you don't need right um so world building a lot of it gets thrown away mm -hmm. and if you're home brewing like mad this was the realization that i came to was doing all this homebrew and world building is really satisfying for me mm -hmm. i love doing it and i love sharing some of it but when it comes time to play, it's actually something else. I'm not, my players aren't there for me to share my homebrew with. Mm -hmm. They're there for the adventure and the jokes among themselves. And I get to play the mustache twirling villain. Mm -hmm. And like, we're all playing characters. I've got all these great NPCs and villains. The part of homebrew that I bring to the table tends to be very character focused. Um, so it's, it's the good guys, the bad guys, it's the the prince in distress mm -hmm. um so if your world building and homebrewing is all heavily based around characters and hooks great you're going to use a ton of it at the table if it's all genealogy um yeah you can be happy with that i, I write out a lot of heraldic descriptions <laughs> a lot of shields and coats of arms and no one at my table except this one player ever cares, <laughs> but I care. And then right. when I, you know, in the Midgard book, it's like every little nation, it's right there. There's the coat of arms. And it's sort of a nod to Gary and Greyhawk because he loved that stuff too. Um, but it's not something you need. It's flavor for the world. It's a little bit of sprinkly spice on top. Um, Spice on top stuff in world building tends to stick with players more than the in-depth stuff. Like everybody remembers frosting, glitter, and sparkles, the stuff that you like that's snazzy. Um, it bugs me sometimes that the throwaway lines gather as much momentum and traction as they do because I'm like, that was a throwaway. <laughs> and eventually I, I go around you know, my first reaction is you're missing the part that I care about, right. <laughs> which is weird. And I always see myself doing this. I'm like, they're not here for that. They're here for the other thing. And I put out 
a giant trail of pixie dust for them. Right. Well, that's a good thing. I like that part of the setting. Let's do more of it. And that was the lesson I learned between first edition Midgard and second edition of Midgard. Like there's stuff in the fifth edition Midgard setting that gets way bigger play than it did in the first book um, because people dug it like the bear folk or the shadow fae. They all appeared somewhere in an adventure um, or a write up and people glommed onto it. Oh, the bear folk actually showed up in a monster book. They showed up in Toma Beasts. And everybody was like, these are great. I'm like, yeah, thank you very much. And they're like, can we play one? So, <laughs> yeah. oh, you ever make I, a monster? They're gonna I make missed a bet. Oh, I was an idiot. <laughs> bear folk should have been a player race from the start. And, you know, they're, they're in the first Midgard book, but kind of as NPCs you would go visit once in a while. And you know, once someone turned it around and said, I want to play one. Oh, yeah, of course you do. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so with the recognition of that, that uh, many DMs like to homebrew their world, yeah. uh, what, what are your highest expectations for how somebody will take something like Midgard and, and bring it into their game? My highest expectation for Midgard is someone will strip it for parts. Okay. Um, I, I mean, if they don't, it's very flattering. We have a hundred adventures written for it short ones long ones long arcs collected series if you just want to say i take ley line magic and i take the bear folk and the shadow fey and those fit in my setting more power to you right because i've done that to other people's settings for mm -hmm. decades i have taken the highlights and i've just run with them um and the original purpose of the midgard setting was hey let's hang adventures on this oh god i really want to talk about using it ventures to do world building since I <laughs> did with Greyhawk for years. Um, but we could go back to that. Maybe. Yeah, I'll, I'll bookmark that one. But bookmark that one. Um, but you know, it was built, Midgard was built to be easy to drop in. Like the adventures are all written as, um, you know, you need a forest uh, or this happens along a, a cold coastline. And uh, <laughs> this has come to bite me later. Um, people have picked up Midgard adventures and said, it says it takes place along a temperate coastline. And I say, uh-huh. And they're like, where's that on the map? Wherever you need it to be. Right. <laughs> we were kind of deliberately vague so that you wouldn't have to worry about it. They're like, well, we want a definitive answer. Uh, that was- just, You're like, just let go a little. Just let, let go, go a little bit. <laughs> it's okay, take a deep breath. Right. It could be on this side of the strait or that side. What is more convenient for your campaign? We want you to run the adventure. All it takes is a coastline and a village. Yeah. And I'm like, but once you start putting adventures in a place, right, they soak up, soak up some of the local ambiance. And that's what happened with Zobek, right? It was like, we need a city to put in the adventure background section of all these adventures we're doing with <laughs> Cobalt Press. Like, you start in the city of Zobek. It was like the default, right? Mm -hmm. Um. We didn't want to flesh it out very much. We're like, okay, we're going to do one city worth of world building. That's it. And then we're going to quit <laughs> because we'll just use that one as the springboard. There will be a forest nearby. There'll be mountains nearby and plains. It'll be easy. And then, of course, the question was, what's over the hills? Um, so, yeah, strip it for parts. I don't, I don't feel precious about it. I think the Midgard elves are wonderful. I think the Shadow Fae are great. I love the dwarves. Um, 
But if they only turn into, hey, the cantonal dwarves are this one weird, wacky hillbilly group of dwarves in my campaign who don't have a king, um, well, all right, that's fine, right? You got something out of it and you stripped it for parts and, um, and that's what it's for. We're, it's a shared world. It's got about it's got about seven or eight major authors in Midgard, right? Everyone thinks it's my campaign setting, but the seven regions in the original book were all written by different people like Brandon Hodge or Jeff Grubb. So there are multiple world builders. That's why they feel so different. Mm -hmm. um, and then the editor had the nightmare task of bringing them all together. <laughs> Get the voice. But yeah, but what it meant was if we had seven different sections, they're easier to pull back apart, right? Um, and they're good for that so, restripping. Yeah, they're good for that restripping. It's like, well, this is the section of the war god. Well, this is the section of the Badlands. This is the Norse kind of thing. Well, those are themes that can resonate in any high fantasy. This is the elf territory. Yeah, the ghoul kingdom. Well, <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a marker down on that and say that's very Midgard. <laughs> it doesn't really appear everywhere else. But, no, it doesn't, but I, I can stick it. In. Like, that's the one I'm going to take. And, yeah, you know, right? It's like... World. Exactly. So that one, um, yeah, if you steal that, it, it, that's exactly the sort of underworld I prefer, right? Who needs drow? Elves, ah, <laughs> the undead don't need to breathe. They will rule the underworld. <laughs> and so that kind of world building um, that's meant to be taken apart is, it, it has certain weaknesses because it means the connections aren't as tight. Um, you are able to disengage this town and that adventure from everything around it. Um, I don't know. DMV has been like this from the start, right? People mm -hmm. have borrowed one another's work. Even if you go back and you look at Lovecraft and Clark Ashton Smith, they were like sticking each other's, their elder gods in one another's <laughs> short fiction, right? And Conan has bits of Smith in it. Right. Um, and that's fine. I think sharing that kind of stuff is great. Barrier Peaks is a beautiful example of, I'm just going to swipe some lasers and stick them. <laughs> Put a spaceship in here. Too. Right. Yeah. And I was like, that's brilliant. <laughs> and I'm um, Gygax did the, the Beyond the Magic Mirror, the Wonderland stuff too, right? Mm -hmm. So. Mash yeah. it up. Mash it up. I'm a big believer in mashing. And what you get then is your player saying, that's genius. And you can, you can be justifiably proud of the way you've twisted and warped and made it yours, right? Even if a bunch of the core ideas, yeah, okay, so this is a ghoul kingdom, but now it's my ghoul kingdom. Right, right. So what are the, so you, you mentioned earlier of the importance, I think it was your third, your third of the three tips of making sure the players are on board. Yeah, uh, this is you, something I do more now. I don't know who started with, it's probably Burning Wheel and Luke Crane, or maybe it was Jonathan. Twi I forget who started way back in the indie scene saying, get your cl uh, players involved in world building. Right. right? Mm -hmm. and, and one way at least to get them involved just in a veto sense is to say, hey, I'm running this kind of campaign. The parameters are you have to play an elf, a half elf, or, or a human, or a gnome. And, you know, Beyond that, this, that, and the other thing. Try and give them, tell your players, you know, we're not going to have a lot of Warforged in this. Mm -hmm. um, is fine, as long as they're on board. 
Um, and then the next step of that is don't just get buy-in, right? Push some of the work onto the players, <laughs> which is, oh, you have an order of paladins or you're from a circle yeah, of what's druids. What's that called? Yeah. Who's and the who's... assassin guild that's after you? Right. right. Tell me about them. And who's this enemy of yours? Oh, you left town with huge debts. Who do you owe them to? <laughs> oh. Right. Um, and then, of course, that's world building, right? Because those are the characters. If they're handing you villains and saying, I pissed off a bunch of diabolical <laughs> um, infernal hell cultists, it's like, oh, well, that that's a whole adventure arc right there. And I can write up that cult or I can go swipe that cult um, from other sources. And in the moment, they've done that it's not just their character their character's place in the world is kind of fixed right they're they're putting themselves in the setting in a way they're comfortable with um did, did you do this sort of um collaborative world building in the uh published worlds that you built not for planescape not for alcadim uh, there was the collaboration well Planescape collaboration was very minor, right? Like, here's your outline, go to town. Or mm -hmm. Zeb Cook has written um, this in the Planescape core box. Use it as the outline for a whole new box, right? right. Um, so people would share data points, but it wasn't, hey, let's go back and forth. Mm -hmm. For the Cobalt Press stuff, uh, we used to have some forums, open forums, where we would brainstorm stuff all day long. It would just be concepts and ideas. And I think that's where a lot of the early Midgard stuff comes from. Um, so I love shared worlds where you are knocking ideas around. But in my at the table play, I'm actually a pretty latecomer, right? Like indie guys have been doing that kind of shared world building for a decade now. Mm -hmm. And I'm, just enough of a game master control freak to say <laughs> no no <laughs> no this is the way the paladins are right you know i've been working on this setting for a year these right. are your choices you could pick the sun god or you can pick this <laughs> what about a wind god no no well from the distant east hardly known or explored <laughs> no they're filled out yeah sorry. i got some maps <laughs> They're unpublished, but oh, come on. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, people do still bring stuff into the game that they want. And uh, hey, Master, you want your players to be happy? And you want their character concepts to work for the rest of the story and the other players? So unless it's wildly out of line, I mean, you can try to adapt. But at some point, you also want people to say, hey, all this world building you've done, I like parts of it, here are the parts I like. Like, this is my hometown, or these are my people, or I learned at this academy. Um, and if they layer more on top of that, then you get something that's stronger. It's partly their creation, partly your creation. So, yeah, so beyond the beyond the collaborative uh, world building aspects, which I think is a really interesting a really interesting way to do it. Um, but if you're, if you're generally bringing, particularly if you're bringing like a published setting, if yep. I bring in Midgard, or I'm bringing uh, Glorantha, or I'm bringing, sure. um, uh, uh, you know, even <laughs> even specific reaches of the Forgotten Realms, what are what are some of the best ways to get your your players to 
you know, what are the things you actually want to give to your players? They're like, here's what you need to know about this world. Right. That isn't all the coat of arms. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the three things I tend to tell people are um, about a region, right? Are who's in charge, what's going horribly wrong. Um, and because of my predilection for Medgard's dappling deities, I tend to say, who are the gods or religious powers involved, right? Which might not work for other settings. It certainly would work for RuneQuest. Um, it might work for the realms. Mm -hmm. um, I love writing Pantheon chapters, but that's okay. <laughs> um, But like, who's in charge, right? Like if it's the village, if you're the heroes and you show up, I'd like to have like the nobles or the chief of the thieves guild or somebody who's an authority show up and talk to one of the players at some point um, and some point fairly early to have them marked out as you're not just children off the farm who took their pitchforks into the dungeon, right? Like people have kind of figured out that you have saved the day once or twice and they either want to threaten you to back off or they want to bring you under their wing and have you do the stuff they want them to do. So that brings them into the wider world, right? If like the powers that be in a modern context, if the establishment embraces them, that's one thing. If the establishment says they're rebels and they must be destroyed, then I get to do my Vader voice and, you know, <laughs> fear will bring them in line. I, I love... Um, having that conflict um, between individuals and the state. And that's personal to me, right? Like that's part of my GMing style is your individual murder hobos. That's great. This is the court of the Shadow Fae. Right. They've been around for thousands of years. They don't give a shit, yeah, right? They're not, they're not putting up with your crap. <laughs> they're not putting up with your crap. Like <laughs> your eighth level. That's great. Yeah, that's nice. You have a great base attack. That's awesome. <laughs> Look at those muscles. Move along. Right. Right? Here's my pack of displacer beasts. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I'm like, okay. And the first time I hauled out the snooty elves in the Shadow Fae, the players were like, ah, come on, we're hot shit. Everyone back in the <laughs> No, place, you're not. Shit. No, not here. Yeah. You're not. You may have been. Right. Now and you I got their attention. Yeah, exactly. So. And not everybody's going to want to do that, right? Like other campaigns may be about being the sneaky rebels or it may be about saving X, Y, or Z person or a family conflict or the big bad dragon that burnt down my village when I was a child, right? There are many other stories, but I love uh, individuals versus the state or individuals serving as agents of the state. So I think you need to figure out what your own personal tells are as a game master mm -hmm. like what's the stuff that gets you excited because while i love the shared world building mm -hmm. um if i'm not excited about my game all right if they go in a direction you don't want to go you're like uh, i don't care right, about can, any of that we can do that first <laughs> session or i got two. a game about that yeah i'm <laughs> like oh it's so boring oh the bookkeeping is going to be horrendous <laughs> please do not explore this trade route oh god <laughs> <laughs> not mercantilism again <laughs> and they've all got the dollar signs lighting up their eyes like look we bring moonsteel from the shadow fate to zobek we'll be rich 
So one, one thing I noticed in campaign in uh, campaign settings in fourth edition, and I, I, I would not be surprised if this was elsewhere, uh, was the idea of sort of the five or six truths about the campaign setting. The yes. Sort of, the thing you could sort of hand to a player. Right, right. There's seven of them in Midgard. It's just, seven a, things it's just to a know. new, like you, you've worked on, you know, game worlds for a long time. What is this a new invention? Did this come from somewhere that you know of? I know we used to keep little lists of like, what are touchstones for certain settings, right? Mm -hmm. Like Dark Sun, it's like, there's never enough water, right? Yeah, right. Um, there is not enough metal. Uh, right. you, like, it is scarcity. The world right? hates you. Yeah. The world hates you. Never give them more metal than they know what to do with. That mm -hmm. is, it's breaking the ethos of the setting, <laughs> right? right? Um, Planescape is always weirder than you think, right? Mm -hmm. So there are those kind of things to know. Um, I think making them explicit and handing them in, out in a published form is relatively new. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's to me, I've been using it for a while. Um, just whenever I'm bringing, even whether it's published or not, uh, or even if it's a small focused thing or not, that idea of like, for the, for the players, I don't expect them to know a lot about the area, but like here are six important things you want to keep in mind, like when you're building your characters or when you think yeah. about how your characters are going to interact with the world. Like yep. the gods are dead, you know. <laughs> like, well, that's you know, an important thing to know. That's an important thing to know before you build your your cleric, right? Yes, and I think, yeah, any world builder would be smart to come up with that list. Yeah, or like the um, one page, you know. Here's the one page that you need to know about this world that has the most important things that set it apart from every other world that exists. In, in right. Fantasy, I mean, right? if you say in Midgard, hey, there's ley lines and magic flows right. and rivers yep. through the land. Oh. That leads to all sorts of interesting yeah, questions from right. every arcanist in your group. I, I love the ley lines. <laughs> I do too. And but you know, it's it's a thing that isn't obvious. It's yeah. certainly not in the standard D and D rule set. So how would they even know? Yeah, I love I love Bemia and I love the wastelands. And well, I love. I just like... some of the oldest <laughs> oldest part of the setting, right? Yeah. That, like Zobek came way later than the Majocracies. Right. Right. Uh, so as you know, you were, you were an editor of Dungeon and Dragon magazine. Uh, yes, uh, I was. For, for some time, right? For some years, five years. Five years. And so did you, I, I presume that you saw people write in with their ideas for campaign worlds beyond just like I'm pitching you an adventure. It was, mostly it was pitches for adventures when yeah. I was on Dungeon, right? Occasionally we would get someone say, I've got the greatest campaign world. Um, but they were rare, and yeah, we okay. kind of threw those back. <laughs> like, we don't care. <laughs> like, we, we can think up worlds, too. <laughs> it was the second edition era. It's like, yeah, we're, right. we're good. Out back we're that we're good. not even publishing, right? Like, we're good. Yeah. But I get them now at Cobalt Press. I still yeah. get people writing in saying, because I have an open door policy on submissions. Huh. And it's kind of a heartbreaker, because often they're like, I have 16 notebooks yeah. and I want you to edit and develop and illustrate and publish it and send me the check. The villain from seven. Yeah. 9,000 notebooks. I hand stitched every one of them. I know. And I'm like, I'm glad you did that world building. It sounds like you enjoyed it and you're very proud of your work and you've played for a long time. What I 
can't really bring myself to say most of the time is it's totally unpublishable in its current form. So what are, what are the things that make it so yeah, when you when you look at like what people submit, even though it's a relatively smaller set than adventures, what are yeah. what are some of the things I guess I'll start with the more interesting question, which is, what are the kinds of things that caught your eye on? Huh? Like that? That's Oh, yeah. Well, the things that make me say, hmm, uh, tend to be the ones who have structured a kind of fantasy that I, I wish I had written, right? Like, oh, this is a new kind of elves, or this is uh, like death metal fantasy, right? It's Frank Frazetta brought to life. It, <laughs> it has a hook right away, and I'm like, the world is dying. There are raiding bands. I'm like, wow, it's pretty grim. This is very Mad Max. I would <laughs> yeah. never write this, but I would play the hell out of this, right? Mm -hmm. It's like Gamma World meets Fury Road. Go to town. I'm like, ah, <laughs> fascinating. <laughs> Not my kind of thing, but as a publisher, I go, I bet there are a lot of people who dig this, yeah. right? Like and Rob Schwab's Godless. Yeah, yeah. like Godless is absolutely, yeah. So, all of those things that I say, is there an audience for this? And have you thought it through enough to like, what's, do you have a decent name for this thing? Like, who are the major players? How is this well-developed? Like, how serious are you about it, right? Do you have an outline? Um, do you have a look in mind? Like the pitch for a world setting is almost never going to happen. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the sad reality of most RPG companies is we can barely keep our own in-house settings mm -hmm. fully supported for the amount of stuff that people would love to have. Like, you know, people are asking for more Midgard. Great. People are asking for more Forgotten Realms. Great. People are not just asking for more Forgotten Realms. They know how much Wizards could do. They're like, where's the Dragonlance? Where's the Eberron? Where's everything? Right? Where's, where's my Planescape book? Where's my Spelljammer? Where's my spell jammer, like, right? A bunch of trolls who are like, where's spell jammer? I'm like, okay. <laughs> but like the amount of work to keep any world feeling fresh is pretty high. So taking on a commitment from somebody who says, I've got a whole world, I mean, even if it seems interesting and it's like there's an audience for it, the way to gauge that and the way to get that to be published is either do it yourself mm -hmm. and you'll quickly realize just how much work the not designing part of it but the everything that comes after design is um or uh, parse it out to people in bits and ed greenwood was a genius at this if you go back in the history of dnd the forgotten realms did not start as a full box campaign setting it started as a bunch of articles about Elminster in Dragon Magazine. Hmm. Well, you can't go publishing articles about your campaign setting in Dragon Magazine anymore. <laughs> but you can, but if you can you, make a blog. <laughs> but if you make a blog, right. it's no one can tell you no, right? right? Like, right. If you can do that and you have a live stream of your game um, and you draw an audience, mm -hmm. Fantastic, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're already building your own audience, and that makes it easier for you to kickstart it, which gets you the funds for the art and the editing and hiring all the people you're going to need to bring your vision to life. Mm -hmm. Because the alternative is get so successful that someone else brings your vision to life, and it's a hard sell. Well, it 
it is if nobody knows you and you don't have a publication track record, right? Like if you have never published on DMs Guild, if you don't have a blog, if you, if no one else has paid you a few bucks for a little thing, then why should I commit my company to years of work, right? Like I want to go with a trusted person. Um, Green Ronin is genius at this, by the way, right? Like they got the rights to the RPG for Game of Thrones mm -hmm. from George Martin before the TV show, series happened. And they did the same. <laughs> I mean, with the Expanse, I guess they waited till after the TV show, but they've got the rights to that world, right? Right. Um, and I think they got. Did they get Talderai? They did. Yeah. Yes, they did. They got. Yeah, right. uh, Matt Mercer and mm -hmm. James Hake to, mm -hmm. to write that. So, I mean, those are settings with a track record. Do I want Taldry? Heck yes. Did they beat me to the punch? Yeah, they did. <laughs> um, but if you have the next Taldry, please come see me, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'd love to talk. Mm -hmm. um, and so there are people now who are streamers just getting started. And if they want to hit me up in six months when they hit certain streaming benchmarks <laughs> right I, i'm all ears but if you just sort of show up and say my players love it it's a little bit like showing up at the art contest and saying my mom says i drew a good picture mm -hmm. well my, my mom by the way says i run a really mean podcast so, <laughs> and she's in the chat i think it's right true. now I see, I have... yeah I mean, I don't know if she's right or not. Family support is important. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's going to get you published. <laughs> I don't know. I, I I want people to be realistic about the odds of publishing a whole campaign setting. It was incredibly difficult for me to get Midgard out the door. Um, and I had all the advantages of, hey, I worked at TSR. Hey, I knew what an editorial calendar was. Hey, some of my friends are people like, I don't know, Todd Lockwood or other artists, right? Um, I was very fortunate. Uh, for other people, like their kind of being fortunate is, hey, I've been running a, a live stream and it's really popular. <laughs> hey, my blog does well. Hey, I run a podcast and I've done this amazing series of lazy DM books. Right? <laughs> An amazing series of two. <laughs> two is a series. Two is a series. I can draw a line. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there will be a third someday. Someday. I don't know. Please, no. Not for a while. No. I'm All tired. Right. I'm very tired. <laughs> um. Well, that's just it, right? Yeah. <laughs> They're not 400 pages long. No, are they? they are not. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Full color. So let's, they are full color. Yeah, I got it right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, see. So, see. Uh, <laughs> uh, so let's go back to that bookmark that we put in place uh, oh, yeah. for adventures as world building. Uh, how, yeah. how can one build world? So is this both from a publisher standpoint or a homebrew or both? I think it's both. And it okay. actually ties in neatly with the question of how do you get your whole setting published, right? Mm -hmm. So... Greyhawk was around before the Greyhawk box set, for instance, right? Uh, you can go back to the, the Giants modules or the, the Underdark mm -hmm. modules or any number of Greyhawk uh, Lost Caverns and say, hmm, they're all set in some sort of place. What is that place? Well, it's Greyhawk. It says so right here in the introduction. Where do I find out any more about Greyhawk? You don't. Because nothing was published in the right. 70s and 80s until that first box, which went off like a bomb, like 
what you can publish all this world stuff in one set of covers and not glean it from adventures was that was that i i presume this is a stupid question that it was the first box set of a game world that came out for D&D? no empire of the petal throne beat it to the punch hmm. which no one except <laughs> most gamers today don't know about ept hang on let me go google that it's really <laughs> really cool i love it to pieces it was written by a linguist for central american languages it has a weird cast structure and it's totally non-western i i, I want to say it's not everyone's cup of tea but it, <laughs> it's it's weird and wonderful mm-hmm. um so it wasn't the first but once that oh, yeah 75 yeah it was way early but no one could wrap their brain around it except like a few. Mm. So like the first world building sets came out pretty soon, but adventures as world building is a great way to go because you can put in a group of villains, right? That are important to your world. You can talk a little about the NPCs or the village or the starting point or the kingdom it's in. Um, Honestly, like Zobek started as a hook for adventures. You gotta save the town. Um, and the more you do that, the more of those adventures you publish that seem to all be about the same place, the more curiosity you will get from uh, people who buy it from you on DMs Guild um, or you know people who play it at a convention. And so sort of a very slow way to do world building, but you only have to reveal very small pieces at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, and if each of your adventures contains another little hex worth of overland map, um, mm-hmm. then you don't have to draw the whole world map at once either. So it's incremental, it's slow. I like slow and incremental world building. It gives you time to think about it. Um, so you think there's a you think there's an advantage uh, doing that in a home campaign as well? Yeah, like just just working on your next adventure and letting that build out a little piece of the world and so on. Yeah, because the next adventure is the part the players care about most. Right. If you focus your efforts on doing the most awesome and amazing adventure possible, then your players are coming back every week demanding more, right? And if you focus most of your limited prep time on uh, genealogies and coats of arms, <laughs> it's like, oh man, it feels like this adventure got slapped together on note cards in about 10 minutes. Like, you need to give it at least 20, right? <laughs> no, 20 that's, 10, that's 10 too long. <laughs> uh, I may be talking to the I'm wrong just, person yeah, here. Right. <laughs> but uh, honestly, I think the stuff, the little hints that you put in about who's the big bad in here mm-hmm. um, or what treasure have you pulled out? It's like, this is a sword that belonged to this order of paladins. Really? Should we return it to them? No, it's too valuable. Will <laughs> they come after us if they found, no, it's been found? huh, maybe, right? Like suddenly you've handed them a treasure in this adventure and you've also handed them a key to a bunch of world building, which is somebody made this sword. Somebody still cares about it. A whole order is devoted to its recovery. Holy shit, who are these guys? Right. <laughs> right? Um, and suddenly the world has opened up a little because in the next village, you know, oh, there was a guy here asking about you. Mm-hmm. Um. So one thing I forgot to mention uh, is you were very gracious in offering us an extra half hour of your 
of your time. Oh yeah, totally. Or in, or until you get hungry and, and hang on. Yeah, you know. Once yeah. I get hangry, I'm gonna start. <laughs> world building's a total waste of time. I thought you said that earlier. Oh wait a minute, to <laughs> some degree. That's the I summary. The summary version. <laughs> a lot nicer. Um, yeah, no, I'll hang around. I will talk world building till you guys like kick me. Off. <laughs> They're like, we gotta go, man. I got. You're I gotta things. play me off like at the Oscars. <laughs> a big. <laughs> So yeah, so we will we will get to uh, audience questions here in a bit, but I've got a I got a yes, we will. We like should to totally talk. take some. I saw some on Twitter. Oh right? yeah, there's a bunch of nice ones. We'll get to them in just a just. All a right. Um, but I'd like to talk. So if we if we just if we focus down a little bit, uh, what are some good ways to build cities? Ooh, you talked about I have so thoughts about this. Yeah, <laughs> I know because you gave me the question, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> um. I think that to a remarkably degree, the history of fantasy RPGs is the history of famous cities, right? Um, you start with Greyhawk, uh, you can go to Waterdeep, um, you can pick up Sigil if you like. It's weird, but it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I love Sigil, yeah. I know, and that was my first big published city assignment, right? Wow. I got, Zeb Cook said, well, I've named some wards and here's some NPCs and like, go to town. I'm like, well, how long does my thing have to be? Uh, I don't forget, 96 pages? Like, ah. Well, the reason cities are such great keystones for world building is that you have to define um, daily life. And I mean not adventuring life, right? Like you have to answer all the questions about what do they drink? Who do they worship? Who's in charge? Who hates who? Right. Is there a ghetto? Who handles the night soil? Yeah, who handles the night soil? Well, the kobolds from the ghetto handle the night soil and are pleased to have the work. <laughs> I mean, really, right? Well, they revolt. Until they revolt. Well, runs, and there's an adventure, runs right? Town. <laughs> but uh, it's a great opportunity to say, what do they make here, right? Who gets paid? Uh, who are the smugglers? Is there a wall? Um, What's the army like? And what's law and order like? And will a tavern brawl get you, what, 50 lashes, dunked in the river, thrown in jail, a fat fine? Um, and once you start defining that stuff, then you're also looking at like science and technology. I have telescope here. Uh, do they print newspapers? Probably not. And the more you know about medieval life and scribes and how hard it is just to be fed and clothed when you have a non-industrialized society it's like damn the weaver's guild is really important or everybody walks around with nothing to wear <laughs> um you can spend a lot of time thinking about society um and so it's a world building microcosm is really what you're doing with every city right yeah it's, it, it almost feels like cities are harder than worlds i think they're as hard worlds you can fake it a lot yeah because yeah, they're so you can be relatively general yeah there's a lot of open plains and orcs live here done right right but cities but, i gotta worry about every shop <laughs> well every and shop. i think you can go too far right like the judges guild city state of the invincible overlord was one of the first that tried to do every single shop <laughs> right. and i know there are people who love that thing and i'm gonna piss them all off right now which is <laughs> What a waste of time that was. I don't care yeah. about every shop. Yeah. I care about the cool shops. Yeah. Right? I think I have a, uh, a Waterdeep City System box set sitting over there. And it has <laughs> like 900, you know, it's got a glossary of like 900. I'm like, I can't even read it. Like, I know. <laughs> I like it. I'm good, but oh my God. <laughs> but like the Zobek Gazetteer is like, okay, it's by sections. 
right. and the cooler the thing is, the more of a page it gets. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so <laughs> you can at least focus your eye on like, here's the one you need. Right, it's right. the Arcane Collegium. Take him there, yeah. Look, it's the Cobalt Ghetto, it's fascinating. Oh, look, it's the really seedy inn where all the Diabolists hang out. Let's talk about it for a while. Um, so, yeah, city building forces you to think about trade and science and religion and technology and daily life. And once you've thought about some of that, you've either done a really great job of defining the rest of the world, you know, within a hundred miles of town, or you've made a horrible mishmash of Victorian England meets, <laughs> I don't know, Mongol Asia. <laughs> it's like, it doesn't make any sense. Um, you have to have your ducks in a row and know something about history and society to make a, a credible city, or you have to have such powerful fantasy that you can stick it on top of a spike out on the plains and everybody says, yeah, that's the place to be. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what role does language have in world building? I want to say I missed my calling by not learning Middle English and translating Beowulf and making up my own Elvish. Um, I think I started with an advantage because I was raised bilingual. <laughs> no points for guessing what my second language was. <laughs> but having additional languages, I think helps with naming and I think it helps with a sense of like if somebody's named Carl the Baker, that's pretty clear. If someone's named Clargosh the Necromancer, that's pretty clear. But if all the names seem a total hodgepodge, then you kind of lose an opportunity, right? Mm -hmm. Like Midgard is quite deliberately borrowing heavily from real world history so that we can say the names over here are kind of Slavic and the names over here are vaguely Spanish or Italian. Mm -hmm. And many fantasy games do this. I think it's a really convenient shorthand to get your players to figure out who these people are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? Because your alternative is to say, here we are in Dark Sun. None of these are like Earth cultures. I'm going to have to explain every one of them to it's you. A lot of consonants. Yeah. And it's context and it's info dumps. And it's like, you can do it. Right. It's totally doable. Right. I think the players prefer a little bit of stereotype enough for them to say oh he's a russian dwarf mm -hmm. or you know sort of get who this guy is just from the way he's presented um so i think language is a shortcut to character and it's like vicious national stereotypes work for you mm -hmm. um if the french perfumier shows up Everybody kind of gets it. Mm -hmm. So as we always have, uh, Rudy Basso, our guardian angel, is on Yay. chat. And he uh, is moderating all of the questions that came in and keeping track of the ones on Twitter and Twitch and everywhere else. And uh, I, I think it's a good time to uh, take some questions from the audience. So Rudy, what, yes. what questions do you have for yes. us? Yes, hello. First off, from Alpha Stream. Question. Seriously, we're the, starting with Teos? We are. He wrote question in all capitals. So... <laughs> Oh well, like an old timey so reporter. I guess if you want to know how to be first, yes, all caps. capital letters will get my attention. 
How important is it when creating various lands in Nate? Uh, sorry, whoop, I didn't want to ask that one. Never mind. How do you veto <laughs> on Alpha Streams? How do you find this? Is also from Alpha Stream. He has uh, several. How do you find the sweet spot of having standard recognizable stuff, species, classes, etc., and new stuff specific to your world? Mm, that is an awesome question, and I struggle with it every project um <laughs> there is a sweet spot between those two things um my own take on it is the boredom gauge if i'm writing a set of whatever dwarves elves etc and they are pretty much standard fantasy dwarves and elves I often find myself sort of drifting as I'm writing and saying, these guys aren't that interesting. Um, and at some point I say, well, in Planescape, we would put a twist on this. And I start looking around for saying, what can we mash in with these bog standard races that makes them more interesting? Mm -hmm. So I think step one is to, to challenge the idea that standard fantasy elements have to stay standard, right? You can have a full campaign setting without high weirdness, but that reinvents elves in some way. And that, oh, I don't know, cannibal halflings, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody remembers cannibal halflings from Dark Sun. Mm -hmm. um, so you can reinvent them on the existing skeleton. How much new original weird stuff to add? Well, the most extreme examples are things like Spelljammer or Dark Sun, where nothing has real world equivalents and everything requires, okay, the hip do, they're the British Navy, but, but other than the give. Um, <laughs> actually, if you scratch hard enough, almost any setting will borrow from the real world. But right. there's so much weird and outlandish we'll stuff. Make yeah, that's the twist, right? <laughs> he's a human, except he's no a No one will tell. No one will know it's colonialism. He's got epaulets on his shoulders. It <laughs> makes him very official. <laughs> yes, yeah. I say. Um, a monocle. The, Everyone the, has to have a monocle. They must have monocles. Well, but... So on the one hand, if they're too standard, everyone is already familiar with them. They're constantly, they're tropes, they're stereotypes, and they're boring. Nobody wants that. And even those who do want that will get bored with them quickly. No, or, they, or they have that, right? Like They've already got it. Right. So you need the new stuff, which is what? Well, it's like Bear Folk and Midgard or Shadow Elves or whatever the new thing is. Cool I, characters. Want, I want the new stuff. Um, and the more jaded your audience is, right, the more they want that new stuff. So here's my rule of thumb. If you're writing for a beginner audience, or if your players are new, don't spend a lot of time on brand new races and the jade folk and the whatever, right? Because for them, dwarves and elves are already new, right? Yeah. Right. And if you are cracking this open for a bunch of uh, new players, no matter what their age is, they're going to go, oh my god, elves, I can be a wizard. Um, and that's that's the joy of RPGs at the start. If your audience is, I have been gaming for 20 years and I will tell you why you are wrong about everything. It's like, oh, I know that guy. <laughs> I meet him at every convention. And I, I, I sort of love that guy, actually. <laughs> he's like, 
you're going to bring like the most jaded and cynical perspective to this work and be a, a really tough critic. Well, for you, sir, we are going to provide not the standard elf and dwarf, but we're going to say, let's go full Spelljammer right from the start, mm -hmm. right? So <laughs> I think the answer is know your audience. Yeah, good. Uh, Rudy, what else you got? From Reverie333 in Twitch chat, what kind of content do you find people are most interested in or excited about when buying a campaign setting? Location description, history, NPCs, etc. Good question. That is a great question. I think the stuff that has gotten people most excited about campaign settings tends to be, um, it tends to be friction, hooks, um, where stuff is blowing up. Because if you leave it hanging, the old stacking gunpowder argument from the Cobalt Guide to World Building, actually. If you leave parts of the campaign setting unresolved and say there's a war brewing, but it hasn't happened yet, or the dragons have been raiding here constantly and no one can figure out how to stop them, um, what you're saying to the game master is this is a place for adventure. This is a place where stuff is going to blow up. This is a place where things are unresolved. Um, and people glom onto that, right? The other thing they glom onto is high fantasy and weirdness. Um, believe it or not, way back in its early days, Midgard was a, was meant to be a gritty, realistic, <laughs> <laughs> low fantasy European uh, setting. Um, and man, we just injected the fantasy all over that and the high weirdness all over that. And it became way less European very quickly. Um, and people love it, right? When we said half-dead gods in stasis stumble around the West, mm -hmm. everyone said, oh, really? Uh, that sounds interesting. Let's go poke at that. <laughs> um, and, you know, people wrote lost tombs out there, and mm -hmm. it's all sorts of goodness. Mm -hmm. um, busted ley lines. Busted ley lines, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like where things are going horribly wrong and where things are weird and eldritch and strange, it's fantasy. If there's not a lot of magic, you might want to play something, you know, like a D20 modern game or I did. D&D to me is at its best when it's really juicy. So don't give me the dry history. Give me the, the most exciting NPCs. Give me the, the flashpoints of danger and give me the high weird. So you, you touched on this a little bit, and this this question kind of keyed it up in my mind too. It's something I've been thinking a lot about, which is when when are we best off leaving things blank? Like even oh, yeah. when even when we have sort of the angry, you know. And I'll I'll bring up an example of mine. So I have a book called Fantastic Adventures, and I have this kind of small town that was meant to be ripped out and replaced with whatever town you had, you know, yeah. whatever town that the the DM had. Um, but I was like, I'll put one interesting feature. I'll have like a giant hand sticking out of the center of the town. And no one can figure out what it is. And nobody can break it. And then they just, right, it's just this giant hand sticking right out. And they built a bar under it, right? And they, like, hang things from the fingers because it's, like, a really cool Awesome. And I didn't do anything else with it. And I had so many people that were like, what's the hand? Like, what's down there? You know, like, is it connected to a whole body? Is it alive? And I'm like, I don't know, man. You tell me, right? Like, I don't. And, and I think that's one of the biggest things to learn about world building is that you can't answer all the questions. If you do answer all the questions, you're doing it wrong, mm -hmm. right? Because it's, 
if you're a world builder for publication, other people are going to be running it. If you're a world builder at your table, you want to get your players excited to find out those answers and talking amongst themselves and picking the best one, right? So leave yourself some room. Yeah, leave a setting room to breathe is such a such great advice. In 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 Midgard, do you have examples of areas that you've left blank that still kind of excite you? Oh yeah, there's a bunch of them that I'm still like there's a lot in the north where we still have an Hyperborea like the extreme north where the wind god Boreas lives and all sorts of weird end time spirits and the giants, we haven't really touched it. Mm -hmm. I'm ready to go there any time, mm -hmm. but yeah. I'm like, mm, we don't have to do everything right away. Right. <laughs> um, and, and there are other places like in the deserts of the Southlands where it's like, oh, there's a bunch of ruined cities on the map. We haven't mm -hmm. touched them. Mm -hmm. We barely got a sentence in them. Um, and, the editor actually came back to me in the second edition Midgard said, you know, you've still got places on the map that aren't really referenced much in <laughs> like, the book. I'm like, it's already 400 pages long. We can't do everything. He's like, all right, just letting you know. Right. Um, so yeah, what people want is the sense of possibilities, right? Mm -hmm. Let there be good stuff. And if they make it up, I'm fine with that. Very cool. Rudy, what else you got? I have a question. Oh, Rudy, are you allowed? Right. Is this allowed? It is allowed. Oh my God, uh, you've usurped. You've, I've you've, done it. You've taken over. I am a guardian devil now, no longer oh, no. a guardian angel. Okay. Ooh. How often do you feel the need to update world events or world canon? And how do you do that if you don't have a line of novels constantly being released featuring a certain <laughs> drow? <laughs> Yeah, I don't feel the urge to update stuff much at all. Um, my home campaign ticks over at much faster than the calendar does because I force it to. But world events, unless it's related to an adventure or someone asks, I don't do a lot of them. Like one a year is plenty, feels like. Um, I know the realms is sort of notorious for the big earth shaking events, but yeah, like it, kings and queens die and successors come along and that's, you know, mayors get replaced and castles get built, but it all happens really slowly. It's one of the joys of pseudo medievalism. Life was slow. They didn't put out a new, uh, you know, wand of magic missiles 2.0 every year. <laughs> yeah, it was actually, even when I was like 14, uh, the um, what was the big event when the gods got all surly in Forgotten Realms? Uh, Man, my Forgotten Realms lore is terrible. My lore uh, is even worse. Uh, 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 God, oh, names right to like all this. the gods. They all came down. A bunch of them died. And I remember reading the books, and I was like, "Man, I'm just starting to learn about uh, about this trilogy. I'm, I'm yeah. sorry, I'm just starting to learn about this world, and it's already all different. Like, Bane is dead, and Merkel is dead, and you know. I mean. That I was said, like, I we, just learned these guys. Yeah, I know. Dead. So I, I tend to be fairly conservative about this. We've changed stuff over Midgard, but usually in response to adventures, mm -hmm. and usually very slowly, like every God. six years. Thank you, Dan Dillon. Time of troubles. Time of troubles. That was it. Man. I don't know who this Dan Dillon character is. Do you know who that is? I don't know. How he you seems to know his stuff. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> At watch least his realms. Time. Yeah. <laughs> All right, next question. Yeah, next question. Next question from Dax underscore Lawless. 
How, uh, how would you introduce world-changing campaign mechanics like Spelljammer into your world that has been run more like a first-edition gritty play game? Oh, wow. Somebody had to get Spelljammer in there. Yeah. <laughs> well, the way I remember it being done when Spelljammer shipped was they just said, here they are, right? You can, you can steal a ship and go to space. Um, <laughs> just do it. It was just piracy, right? <laughs> um, or start the campaign there. I don't know. I think you got to get your players buy-in on that kind of change. Because if they're like, we're really happy with the way things are going, and they don't want to go to space, then boo. Um, hmm. Part of this is just my irkedness with Spelljammer makes travel too easy. Um <laughs> It's really hard to introduce those kinds of halfway through the campaign, the rules change. Um, I think it can be really satisfying if done well. Um, if you've been leading up to it in some way, if the players have a real choice about it, if they can say no, that's good. If the players are sort of kidnapped, taken on the boat, and can never get home, they're going to resent you. They're not going to say, oh, you've made a wonderful change in the campaign. They're going to say... <laughs> Thanks for stealing all my magic items. Right, you've stolen all my magic <laughs> items. All of the people and places that we rescued are gone, and all, like everything we loved about the world is gone. And this happens in fiction all the time, but in tabletop RPGs, like players want to keep their toys. Um... Yeah, I've seen I've seen some adventures. I think now there's there's a couple. There's um, a couple, and it's always very dicey. Yeah, but like they'll have like a spelljammer ship that's like embedded in a mountain, and you'll just see it in a cave. And there's like this theory of like if they really want to spend a lot of time, they'll go over and screw with it. Otherwise, they'll be like, wow, that's weird, and they'll keep going on whatever their merry journey is. I think it's always fine to give players the option. Right, I'm putting it right here. You could draw from the deck of many things, or you could ignore it. Um. But if you aren't giving the players a choice, then I think you are screwing up this large campaign changing event. Right, right. Rudy, what else you got? From Blake Ryan Batman on Twitter, what mistake with world building have you learned the most from? Uh, oh, that's a good one. Hmm. I don't know. I think advancing the timeline too quickly is certainly a thing. Um, I don't have a great answer for this. Oh, actually, I do have one. <sighs> this is gonna be a good one. It makes one. me sad every time I tell it. <laughs> I'm filing off the names to protect the innocent, but there. There's a section, there's a, it's a part of a campaign world that I'm really fond of that had a fantastic write-up and all this cool world building about it and this hidden city and this jewel of culture and all these weird people, characters, and it was all in a place the players couldn't really get to. It was like a city in a bottle, invisible city kind of thing. <laughs> I'm like, go this there. is so awesome. And it's like, yeah, but the people who live there defended, and if you visit, they wipe your memory. And I'm like, no, that's a horrible way to do this, right? Like, I get a hidden city. 
but it should be obvious that the players should be the ones who discover it and have the joy of discovery and exploration. And saying you can't find it is just, uh, yeah. So um, I very much regret that particular take. <laughs> and if there's ever a new version of that setting, that would be something I would fix. I mean, it, it, it sounds like you could almost extend that out to any time you have campaign elements that weren't thinking about the characters. Right. <laughs> right. And like, they can be the coolest thing ever. And if they're just for you, they're a mistake, unless your audience is you, right? Like, I'm willing to say there's world building you do for your own mm -hmm. sake. But if you're publishing it, or if you're running it at the table, then saying, haha, here's a cool thing you'll never see. Right. Yeah. And some of these things take years to pay off. There was, uh, well, the Pathfinder people did this recently where they they finally brought around the Rise of the Rune Lord stuff from their very start of their adventure paths. Mm -hmm. And it's paying off now, like 10 years later, mm -hmm. they're doing the big reveal, right? So mm -hmm. it's like, okay, you couldn't see it for 10 years, but now here it is. <laughs> Neat. That's fine, <laughs> but don't say never. Right. Rudy, what other questions? From Alpha Stream one in Twitch chat. Question. How important is it when creating various lands and nations to have connections between them? What kind of connections do you like to create? Uh, yes, I guess I could have used this as an answer to a different question. The prior question. It's a mistake not to connect them. <laughs> <laughs> you can have cool countries that are totally isolated like islands and it's a shame if they don't connect and i'll tell you why um you want them to connect so that they can hate each other and have conflict hmm. um war religious uh schisms any kind of conflict between nations and societies is fuel for adventures um so you want them to have trade connections you want them to have religious or cultural connections um, you want them to share borders. I'm always amazed that some of the areas in the realms aren't connected. Others are. That makes sense. Um, I don't feel like everything needs to be connected to everything else, but there should be places where it's very clear that this nation and that nation came from the same stock, and now they've gone down different roads and they hate each other. Or, um, uh, these nations have always disliked one another, uh, or these two nations have an uneasy alliance, right? Like if you can draw those kinds of connections early, um, you're making life easier for yourself or for your audience um, when they're looking around to say, you know, where can I, where can I start trouble? Mm -hmm. um, so the connections I like are religious, trade, and war. Mm -hmm. Any place that's likely to blow up uh, money, power, that's all fun. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Rudy, you got um, any other questions? Yeah, so let's close with this. Shortman Ian asks, if someone is new to 5th edition and has never heard of Midgard, what's your elevator pitch to get them interested? Oh, perfect. Oh, yeah, I'd love to end on that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, during the GM's Day sale, it's 78% <laughs> off on drive Oh, my God, I got to buy it. It's like it, twelve getting more bucks. Copies. Twelve bucks for the hero's handbook and the world book. It's like what? Seven. Yeah, I know it's stupidly cheap. <laughs> um, I. But uh, but the pitch as to what's in it and the awesomeness that's in it is, uh, it's a dark world. Um, 
with strange magic, and it's full of ley lines, shadow elves, raven folk, and bear folk. It basically takes European history, puts it through a dark fantasy blender, and says, you want to walk through shadows, you want to be a hero, here's your opportunity. Um, there are elder gods, there's all kinds of divine meddling, um, and most of all, there's like a hundred adventures plotted out for it and available now for fifth edition. Uh, some of them written by people like Mike Shea. Uh, <laughs> Dan Dillon, who's sitting here in chat. Dan Dillon. Um, so it's a rich, vibrant setting that's been going on for uh, 10 years now. Um, and it's got a little something for everyone. Uh, the other thing I always pitch at conventions is it's called Midgard, but it's not all about Vikings. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of, of just traditional fantasy and and other flavors it goes more central european deep dark forest german slavic turks with dragons <laughs> um yeah that's sort of the elevator pitch i i am like the worst pitch man in the world for midgard honestly <laughs> love it to pieces and every time somebody says well you know why do you love it I, i'm too close to it you're asking the wrong guy uh, <laughs> but Oh, we lose somebody. Oh, yep, right, right. Are you there, Wolf? I warned you. My hardware's old. I'm here. Hear me? Oh, oh, oh! I think I hear you. Back? Maybe back? You're back. Oh no! I'm back. Oh my goodness! All right, I've. Oh, you're dropping again. <laughs> All right. Well, Wolf, thank you very much for being on the show. Without the video. Yeah, I think we will. I think we will call it a show right there. So I want to thank Wolfgang Am Bauer I for being on the back? show. I don't. Mike, oh, do no. his plugs. Uh, check the do Twitch chat. Yeah, There's a link to the. The GM's Day bundle is insane. You get the that Heroes is, Handbook yeah, and the World crazy. Core book for $13, I think. Check it out. Link in <laughs> that chat. Is, that is stupidly cheap. Yeah. yeah. Well, so uh, I want to thank I want to thank Wolfgang for being on the show. It was awesome to talk to him about all these things world world building. God, I got to get my head around all that. It was great. So, we will have another episode of the Don't of the Don't Split the Podcast Network of the DM's ah. Deep Dive soon. Yeah, cobaltpress.com. <laughs> Check out right. press.com. See you, yeah. everybody.